of the most beautiful representations, I think, of what Jesus had in mind when he said, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's just awesome. So can we give it up for our high school students? Here you go, guys. So awesome. Hey, quickly, just want to do a couple things here. First of all, I want to thank you for Thursday night, Night for Hope. If you came, uh, we gathered downtown at the Fox Theater. Um, we introduced this concept of stakeholders, people who own the ministry of PCC uh, and people who made a commitment. We put up our original charter of the church. We found it with the original 22 people that signed in a Burlingame living room in 1951. And we talked about the need for God to revive and put a spirit of ownership on all of us. As we say in our town, we are going to be a force for good. Uh, we had three other lead pastors there from other churches in Redwood City who uh, stood with us. And afterwards, actually, one came to me, turned in a card, and gave, is giving financially to this vision. He's like, this is our vision. It's not just PCCs. It was an incredible, incredible night. And uh, I was at a dinner party last night, and at the front porch was this stake in the ground. It says, uh, hope that moves, we are PCC. In other words, what people are doing is saying, you know what? PCC doesn't just have property at 3560 Farm Hill Boulevard. Our home is going to be kingdom property for the kingdom of God. Our place of employment is. We're not going to have two sites or four sites down the road. We're going to have hundreds, and they're called homes where people live 24-7. So if you missed it, uh, I want to tell you, after Easter, we're going to have a lunch for hope, and you're more than invited to come for that. You don't want to miss it. It's an incredible thing that God's doing. So thanks for those of you that came. Now, I want to introduce our guest speaker today, and four words come to mind when I think of Mark Laberton. Here's the first, shepherd, shepherd. Uh, Mark pastored for 16 years in Berkeley at the First Presbyterian Church of Berkeley. The last eight years, he has been shepherding pastors like me and other future leaders through the Fuller Seminary, uh, which has 4,000 students that come from 169 different countries from around the world. He is literally shepherding leaders for the gospel around the world. And that leads me to my second word, spokesman. Uh, Mark is really working and striving, and God's using him to position the gospel in such a way that it's still relevant for our culture, which continues to shift at a rapid pace. And God has gifted Mark in amazing ways for that. Uh, my next two words I really love, genuine. Uh, Mark is the real deal. And when I think of the aspect of Jesus and meekness, I think of Mark. Uh, the last thing I want to say about Mark is he's incredibly gifted. Uh, there is, I really believe, there is, are men and women that God raises up for a whole generation the Old Testament puts it this way, for such a time as this. And today I believe we get to hear from one. Uh, so would you please welcome Mark Laverton to the platform. Thank you. Thank you. Well, good morning. It's great to be here. I uh, am a great admirer of this church. I've had many, many friends that have been part of this congregation over the years. And people who have been deeply influenced by the ministry here. So I'm delighted for the first chance that I've ever had actually to be here and worship with all of you. So thank you for the privilege. And I do want to say how much I love your pastor. Um, how could you not love someone named Gary Gadini? That just is already <laughs> amazing. I don't have the orange shoelaces that he has, but you know, there's other things that we share. And the deepest thing that we share is really a common heart for the gospel and for the work of God in a community of people like this. And I'm so grateful that God's brought you here, Gary, and over all these years and many other people that are part of the staff and leadership of this church doing such important things. So 
God bless you. And especially in this season, uh, he's been sharing with me a bit about what it is that's happening and the way that the peninsula just continues to change after all the years that we spent living and ministering in Berkeley. I'm very aware of the dynamics of the Bay Area. I'm aware of how extraordinarily it's changed even in the last four years since we moved from the Bay Area down to Southern California. So it's really evident to me that there's something happening, and not only in terms of just population and traffic, but even more profoundly, that there's something really happening around the Bay Area that hasn't ever happened before. There's only two parts of the United States that have never experienced something that historians would call a spiritual revival. The Bay Area is one of those, and the Northwest is the other. So I sense that there is really something happening in this area, in this time, which does feel to me markedly different than all the decades of life that I've spent in the, in the Bay Area. There's something afresh afoot, and I'm really, really glad that you want to be a part of that. Today we're going to be thinking about a text that comes in the book of Galatians. You've been going through this series, and we're going to pick that up at the very end of chapter 5 and the first part of chapter 6. So here now, this great text. The Apostle Paul writes, Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone, without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Oh God, we turn to you as the teacher who by your spirit is here to instruct us, to illuminate the text, to make it a text that addresses us, both individually and as a community. May we have ears to hear and hearing May we be willing to actually live what you encourage us to do and to be. In Jesus' name, amen. The Apostle Paul knows that the world is frankly starved for love. And when he writes the letter that he does to the, book of, uh, to the people in Galatia, he's describing a work of God in a region in which that gospel has taken root, but it's fragile. And you know that early on in your study you discussed how significantly Paul passionately argues that they would not surrender the gospel. The anxiety is that they're not just giving up a formula as though they're going to give up some kind of confessional set of words. His anxiety is that they're going to give up the reality of the discovery of the gospel, which is our only hope of love in the world. It is the most profound and transformative form of love. It's the source of all other love. And it's that love which is really the hope of the world. So when Paul argues desperately that they not surrender the gospel back to some kind of legalism, what he's saying is, I'm inviting you and the gospel invites you to come all the way into the very heart of God. Don't decide that you're going to now stand bound in some kind of private sector where through rules and regulations you're going to end up actually limiting your experience of the love of God. Instead, boldly trust that you're going to live in a context of overwhelming grace. And again and again and again, as you've seen over the last weeks, this is Paul's great theme. By the time he comes to the end of the, of the letter to the Galatians, he does what he often does, which is to then become ever more applied. The theology that has been the undergirding framework of what he's saying, he now wants to say, now this is how you can actually get on with living it. And in a very ordinary, very pastorally sensitive way, he starts with framing it in this way. 
Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. See, Paul's assuming that it's not just now handing out a to-do list. He's saying God is at work in the world. This God of love, this God who alone can set us free from ourselves, this God is the God who wants us to be in step with the Spirit. Don't just follow your own spirit and instincts. Be in step with the Spirit of God in whose life you will find freedom and joy. And it's in that context that Paul then wants to go on and give the instruction. But the assumption then is we're going to be in step with the Spirit. How do we live in step with the Spirit? We live in step with the Spirit by being, first of all, just open to the Spirit's real, genuine, profound, personal work in our lives. It's the work of the Spirit through the witness of the text of the Scriptures and through the witness of God's people that together help attune our hearts and minds to be ready to understand what is the Spirit of God doing. What is the Spirit of God doing? Where is God? Some of you know that one of the great ancient traditions in the church has been called a prayer of examine. And the prayer of examine is a prayer that often is used at the close of every day. And one of the questions in the prayer of examine is to simply ask, where have I seen God at work today? If you just began to develop a pattern of pausing at some stage over the course of your day in a regular routine to say, where am I seeing God at work? It begins to attune your heart and mind to be open, thoughtful, deliberate about saying, what is the Holy Spirit doing? It might be in your workplace. It might be in your office. It might be in your home and your family. It might be in your neighborhood or your school. Whatever context of life we might be in, we can pause and just ask, where, oh God, are you at work? And how can I join you in that work? How can I keep in step with the Spirit? That's the evidence of where Paul says is kind of the frame. Now, the frame then can get actually clogged in various ways. Love can get stopped. And that's part of what Paul has in mind when he then goes on to say, let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Paul here suddenly comes all the way down to the ground. This is not no abstraction. These are not words that are attached midair. This is a person who knows how human relationships work, where conceit can cause us to be distorted in our understanding of ourselves or our neighbor. Where it can actually become provocative and our ability to love is going to be hampered by the way that that actually unfolds. And our willingness not just to do that, but also then to be envying in a way that distorts and subverts the freedom of our relationship so that, in fact, we can't actually be in a free-flowing context of loving community because it's clogged by this backwash that does nothing but damage our relationships. So this whole sense of conceit, of failing to see ourselves as we truly are. Conceit is a distortion. It's a distortion that's not about understanding our dignity or our value or our worth. It's the psalm who said that, for example, Psalm 139, that says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, that we've been intricately wrought in our mother's womb, knit together. This amazing sense of the value and dignity of each of our lives. But conceit is something else. Conceit takes all that and then distorts it. Sometimes it distorts it by amping it in pride. But sometimes it distorts it by emptying it, by self-loathing. And either spectrum is a conceit because both make our life largely, really, finally, and ultimately, at any given moment, mostly about ourselves. This is the small terrain of a small heart and a small mind that's no bigger than just the size of our own personality, our own appetites, our own needs, our own backgrounds. This is the great danger. One time I was speaking at an event that had such bright lights on the stage that I really could see almost no one that I was talking to. But what I could see was a really big video monitor that over here had an image of me. 
And then on the other side of the stage, there was another really big video monitor that had another image of me. And then, of course, there was me. So there was me and me and me. I thought, this is sort of the postmodern trinity. This is, this is the world I was made for. This is what I've always longed for, that everyone and everything would be about moi. That it would really, everyone seems to be so convergent. We're all thinking the same thing. We're all given to pursue the same things. Our appetites, our desires, our imagination, it's all given to the same thing. It just turns out it's all a deception if I have any illusion that that is reality. That that small little triangle of me, me, and me is the center of the universe. That is what Paul wants us to be saved from. So don't surrender to that as though somehow you're going to get bound up again in yourself. Conceit is to be bound into yourself so that we're unable to actually see other people because we're so absorbed with our own frame, our own experience, our own perceptions that we can't see the people that live in our house. We can't really hear our spouse. We can't really hear and understand our children. We can't really engage with our friends because we're actually more absorbed really in how they see us. You know, enough about me. Now, what do you think about me? is sort of the way that a lot of life can go. That is the conceit that Paul says, don't let love be hampered by this. Because what will happen is that it leads, he says, to being provocative. Well, it will be provocative. Because if you're the big rock in the middle of every conversation, in the middle of every relationship, in the middle of every moment, and it's all really about you, it's really about your feelings, it's really about what you do, that is a provocative way of living. And it doesn't allow another person the space to be themselves, to bring their own concerns, their own joys, their own struggles, their own pain, their own confusions and questions. Instead, it's really all about us. That is a conceit of self-absorption. The gospel wants to deliver us from what Malcolm Muggridge called the dark little dungeon of our own ego. Don't get caught there. That is bondage, not freedom. So be set free from that. And if you walk in tune with the Spirit, bearing the increasing evidence of the fruit of the Spirit that Paul's talked about in chapter 5, then we begin to actually be set free for that kind of life. This is going to require change, right? This requires that we become new people. It's not easy to do this, especially when we live in a culture like ours, which is given to 42,000 reasons to be absorbed with your appetites, your tastes, your preferences. Every possible thing that could be, ever be tracked by Facebook or anything else is going to nuance every part of, particle of life in order to be able to zero in on the fact that you are the center of their objective goals. And it's not because they have any interest in you or in me, but because it makes money. And it's all an illusion that is the very essence of what is not life in the kingdom of God. God wants to give us the dignity and value of our life, but then to set us free from being absorbed by ourselves so that we can actually learn to live an unexpected love. That's what he goes on to then describe in the opening verses of chapter 6. Notice the language. He uses this very intimate personal language, brothers and sisters. This is not a, a set of injunctions or encouragements that he gives from on high. He's doing it as part of the family of faith. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. See, the image that Paul has is that in the ordinary life of the people of God, of course, we're, we're going to fail. We're going to be guilty of sin. There are going to be things that will break our relationships and break our lives in different ways. There will be things that will happen that will, will undo us. What are you going to do about that? Paul says, don't marginalize them. Don't push these people away. The image that he uses is really more like an image of res restoration that comes from surrounding a broken arm or a broken leg with a cast that creates an environment where a person can actually be restored. 
And notice that he says, not just restored, but do this work of restoration gently. There's something very delicate about this process. We're talking about people made in the image of God with extraordinarily fine-tuned personalities and lives, vulnerabilities. We live in a culture which promotes competence, which is all about demonstrating and letting other people know just how competent we are. Here, Paul uses language that says, oh no, the story of our real lives is not the story of competence. It's actually the story of vulnerability. We're vulnerable to the possibilities and realities of sin. We're vulnerable to the possibilities of injuring other people. What do we need to do? We need to acknowledge our fallenness. We need to be in a community that can surround and restore us. And we do this in gentleness. Just think of the way that Jesus responded to the woman at the well. Or the way that he responded to the woman caught in adultery. Or the way in other ministries he touched the leper who needed to be healed. He was doing what? He was restoring with gentleness. Some of you know by personal experience that we actually live in a world of violence. Abuse, various kinds of abuse, abuse inside the family, abuse among friends and neighbors, abuse, violence of different kinds, verbal, physical, sexual, psychological, emotional abuse is a real fact in the world. Paul here, I think, is using this language that says, I want you to understand that what we're talking about here is something that requires stepping toward vulnerability for the sake of restoration in a context in which the vulnerability that people have needs to be held delicately, faithfully, persistently, so that they can be restored, but gently, not manhandling other people, but actually kindly, gently supporting them. Oh, that this was the reputation of the church. Oh, that this was the thing that was the reputation on the street, that really... Whatever a person might think, if they're outside the life of the church, I'm not, not sure what I think about the church's theology, about this or that or the other thing. But the thing about the church is, it's filled with people of just unexpected, extravagant love. But that's exactly the crisis of the church, is that that's not really our reputation. Why isn't it our reputation? Because we don't practice what Paul's actually describing here. We don't use our freedom for the sake of necessarily building one another up, encouraging, strengthening each other. I'm so grateful for the evidences of the fact that this congregation does attend to that kind of love. But I know because it's just true of every church that it needs to keep on growing. It keep, needs to keep on deepening. It needs to be freed from the conceit and the provocation and the jealousy that can so often easily distort relationships with one another. Go on, Paul says, in step with the Spirit, Learn how to do the things that are going to really matter in our lives. Notice he then goes on to say, in fact, this is serious enough stuff to learn how to love that it should actually weigh on you. This is the image, is it not? In verse 2, carry each other's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. See, what Paul has in mind here is that as Christ has carried the weight of our lives in sin, so now we as people in the community of God's people are given the opportunity to help shoulder the weight of other people's burdens. To actually hear them and to invite them, to welcome them, to actually shoulder carry them, to feel the weight of it. Now we can spend our life doing nothing but using two pound weights if we want. I would call that sentimental love. We know there are such things as weights and we can wave our arms as though it looks like love. But we haven't ever really given ourselves to the training of learning to love. To really actually carry the weight of someone else's lives. Why? Well partly because we're still self-absorbed. 
And partly because, frankly, love costs something. It will require that we lay down our self-absorption. This is the kind of change that's needed. A few years ago, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal about the growing popularity of private jet travel. It focused in, as this kind of a human interest story does, about the fact that in a post-9-11 world, commercial air travel is a hassle. And so that focuses on this guy who had invented something, who became a gazillionaire, who could then fly privately. And in his story, he says, you know, it all turned for me on this one day when I was flying from one side of the country to the other. I, of course, was in first class, he says. There was a woman in business who had a baby that cried the whole way across the country. And then he says, and that settled it. I knew that very day I would never fly commercial again. And then he gave us his mission statement, and it was this. He said, because, quote, I've realized that the really important thing to me is to exclude from my life anyone who might bum me out. Okay, let's just meditate on that for just a minute, because I think this is really quite a little mantra. Okay, because I've decided that the really important thing to me is to exclude from my life anyone who might bum me out. Now... At, when I first read this, I thought, that's disgusting. And then I thought for about five seconds more, gee, that's really awkwardly familiar. Now, I don't practice it at the elite stage uh, of life that he does. I don't fly commercially or privately in order to avoid uh, the hassles of commercial air traffic. But it's not true that I don't do all kinds of things every day to include and exclude people from my life. Is this not why we all love having caller ID on our phones? Is this not why Mark Zuckerberg understood that it would be so helpful if we could just seamlessly unfriend people on Facebook? Why? Because we are involved in an elaborate dance. It's called sociology, by the way. We're involved in this elaborate dance every day of a sociology that allows us to include and exclude. And it defines where we live. It defines where we park. It defines who gets our phone number and our email address. It defines who we pay attention to. It defines who we see, who we think matters. It's all this elaborate, rather seamless, quite polite sometimes, forms of inclusion and exclusion. And it's formed in such a way that it really defends my desire to be free from the things that might bum me out. I have the privilege of having an administrative assistant. What is an administrative assist assistant for? To keep away the people who might bum me out. <laughs> I really like having them do that for me. And that is not a quality that honors the character and purpose of the kingdom in the largest sense. We have to become free, free to love, free to move beyond our petty self-interest, to be willing to actually learn to realize that if we exclude people who really bum us out, we're probably almost certainly excluding some of the people for whom not only did Christ die, but the people for whom Christ's heart is most poignantly available. The people who aren't on our agenda. They don't advance our cause. They're not donors to our purpose. They're not our boss. They're not the people of influence. The people that we're meant to see and love are the people who might especially bum us out. It might be people whose circumstances are radically different than our own, whose economics don't look like ours, whose race may not be ours, whose 
circumstances of life might be a whole lot more complicated, whose popularity in school or in the workplace may be so different than what we're chasing, rabidly chasing because we're voraciously hungry for love. But if the love issue has been settled because of the heart and faithfulness of God, then we're meant to be set free to carry each other's burdens, to actually step toward the vulnerable and the marginalized and the people that are forgotten and unseen. Thank God Jesus didn't say, come to me unless you bum me out. He said, come to me, all you who totally bum me out, and I will give you rest. That I've come for those who bum me out, and I want to give you my life. And in some sort of way, you and I are meant to be people in communion with others around us who express and make tangible and visible that kind of love to people who have never been welcomed. We are meant to carry each other's burdens. The burdens of vulnerability, the burdens of worry, the burdens of loss, of fear, of anxiety, of pain, of suffering. That's the work of love. And Paul just uses this wonderful statement to simply say, so carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something, again, back to the conceit, if anyone thinks they are something when they're not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. This should show up in real time. This is not an idea as though we can love in our head and not love with our bodies, not love with tangible action in the world. That's a complete falsehood. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each should carry his own load. See, did you notice that double emphasis? On the one hand, we should carry each other's burdens. And on the other hand, we should carry our own burden. A lot of times, there's a discipline within American culture that suggests everyone should simply carry their own burden. But Paul says, oh, there's a place for saying that we should carry our burden. And there's absolutely a place for saying we need other people to help carry our burdens. It's both and not either or. And we have to find in our own lives, how are we not only just caring for ourselves, but how are we making our life, our time, our money, our resources, our feelings, our thoughts, to help shoulder and carry the burdens of other people that are around us? Are we prepared to be that kind of person? Are we prepared to love in that kind of way? It means that we have to love beyond the categories of our own safety, our own self-interest. It means actually breaking open, cracking open the universe to a new way of understanding the nature and character of love. That's what's meant to be continuously, ongoingly demonstrated by the people of God. When the mission team that we just commissioned is in Mexico, that is not principally about the experience of the people that are being sent and commissioned from here, but it's about the way they experience and shoulder one another's burdens in that experience together and the way that they serve the people and receive from the people that they're going to be able to be with. That is a dynamic of love, and it's like a rehearsal. It's like acknowledging this is meant to be normative life. This is how we walk through each day, and we're meant to walk through each day attentive, seeing, perceiving, engaging, loving, serving, the people that are around us because we have the freedom in Christ to move beyond the categories of self-interest to a new way of seeing and understanding the people that are around us. So do we practice this? We can do this in so many different ways. I think one of the things, one of the prayers that I pray most often, many, 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 many times every day is a very simple prayer that's sometimes simply called the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy. 
Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy. I may be walking down the street. I may be driving. I may be with a friend. I might be having a meeting. I may be facing a decision. I might be considering a worry. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy. Asking for the awareness of what is God doing in this place and how do I move toward that because of the assurance that this is a place where God is more at work than I could imagine and where I or other people around me might be agents of response to whatever the circumstance might be. This is the ongoing work, but it will require change and it will require that we do it as a practice. These words that Paul uses are really tangible words. Carry the burden. That's not a metaphor. That's actually an exercise of mind and heart and will, of actually being engaged in what it means to help carry the weight of another person's life or their circumstances. This can be difficult, difficult when the person is really other from us because of race or class, because of political opinion, because of division and hostility that sometimes divides a local congregation or a community. These are all the evidences that we have to practice learning to love and it can get stopped. This is what Paul is continuously aware of. So how do we face that and then move through it? I once served a church that had a very high stone chancel area. This was all stone and it had probably uh, 10 more steps. You came up a long way to come up onto the chancel area. And the church had a tradition in communion services that each element of communion, the bread and the cup, were taken separately. So the elders would all come up and they would get uh, the bread and then they'd go back out and serve it and they'd come back up and they'd get the chalices, go back out. And because it was so high and because it was stone and because it was all happening at the same time, there was always a kind of precariousness about how this is going to go. And there was this one particular day when these two elders came up and they turned toward each other and they just absolutely collided and the cups that they had just made the most unbelievable sound and then rolled slowly down the steps, spreading the juice and everything else all over everything that was everywhere. It was really, really a mess. But the real mess was not that. The real mess was what I saw happen between them. As they looked and faced each other just after this collision had occurred, what I saw was not just social embarrassment. It was actually hatred. It was really thick hatred between these two guys. It happened after the service that we, the three of us were together and uh, we talked first about the mess on the floor and then I said, now, what I need to know though is wh what was that about? They both just became immediately and completely silent. We stood there for a long time until one of them said, it started 25 years ago. What unfolded then and then in conversations following that was just 25 years of unresolved bitterness, anger, resentment, toxicity that had passed between these two guys. Here we are serving at the Lord's table together, a table of love. But between them, there was hatred. Over many meetings, what unfolded was just a really painful, complicated story. It was understandable that there was real injury. It was understandable that there had been real pain. There was, it was understandable that each had disappointed the other in very significant ways, but it had never been faced. It had never been worked through. It had never been understood. And it had never actually been named even to each other, even though they felt it so passionately. We came to a place where they really had eventually come to really quite a remarkable resolution. And 
on another communion Sunday with no coordination whatsoever. The moment came when suddenly I see them both coming up the stairs together. I'm immediately provoked to remember the, the collision, hoping that didn't repeat itself. But what ended up happening is that instead they served each other communion. And it was in a very quiet way, not known really by hardly anyone in the church, that this relationship had been deeply and truly restored. And they could say to each other, this is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the blood of Christ shed for you. This is the love that now has healed us, has restored us gently in the work and grace of God. You're called to be that kind of community to each other. You carry each other's burdens. You walk alongside each other. You're meant to be close enough, vulnerable enough with one another that you can actually help share in this kind of organic, real spiritual life. And you do it because you need this restoration. Every congregation needs this restoration. Not just because of two people and like that that hate each other, but because of just the ordinary stuff that causes people in real relationships in a real world to struggle relationally. That's, that's the stuff that we live with. But what we do about it is what's at stake. And here Paul says, use your freedom to love in an unexpected way. Take the initiative. Carry the burden. Listen. Pay attention. Consider. Weigh seriously the life of another person and their needs. But as you do that, you do it both because you need it, but also because the mission of God through you is actually stopped up in some measure if we don't do that work together. The work that God needs and wants to do on this peninsula with people by the thousands still continuing to pour into this area in a context in which we are politically divided, racially divided, socially divided, often in context of great division the bay area in my experience has often been about proximity to diversity but not engagement to diversity we are near each other but we don't actually know one another we don't actually love one another we're nearby we can feel as though we're in a, a diverse place but we may or may not really have deep and profound relationships with people who are not like ourselves are we learning to love that's going to be the key to whether or not you're the avenue through which this love can actually pour out to the Bay Area in the peninsula and this particular town in the way that God intends it to do. You are the workshop. This is the time, not some other day. Now is the time for you to be doing this work of continuing to grow in love so that as the reality of the world continues to pour into the peninsula, you are the evidence, as Paul exhorts the Galatians to be, the evidence of the presence of the love of God that alone can give the world freedom. Friends, it really matters whether you love in this way. It's not thought in the Gospels to be sort of tertiary. It's not something secondary, incidental, kind of believe on the one hand and do it. Well, whatever. I mean, some people do, some people don't. Just be sure that you have your confession and heaven squared away. That is not what Jesus teaches and it's not what the Apostle Paul says. We are called to live into the freedom of God's grace in order to give that freedom in love to the people that are around us. May you with riveted desire receive the love and grace of God. But then may you also grow in your capacity to keep giving it away with generosity and lavish faithfulness. Because it's in that that then we become the witness to the freedom that only Jesus Christ can give. If the, Jesus says at the end of the story, you know, if at the end of the day all we've done is love people who are like us, who like us, even the Gentiles could do that. It's as much as to say anybody could do that on any given day. The question is, are we prepared to love those who are not like us, 
who don't like us and who may even be our enemies. We follow an enemy-loving God as the gold standard of love. And we are called to a long process of growth into a life in which we become enemy lovers as well. So today, tomorrow, tomorrow at work, tomorrow at home, in the neighborhood, on your drive, endless opportunities to practice again and again what it means to keep in step with the Spirit, to grow in love, and to do so for the glory of God. Lord, by your grace, may this congregation be so invited into the gospel, so invited into the freedom that is meant to be theirs in Christ, that they are set free from themselves in ever deeper ways. Not because they don't matter, but because they do deeply matter. And your love is the hope, the cornerstone, the rock of that hope. So may it then be possible that they will ever more fully and with extravagance and generosity seek to love and to love those that are both near them and like them and those that are not at all like them and who may even be enemies in some sort of way, to be people who demonstrate this unexpected love because of the freedom that is to be ours in Jesus Christ. May you be lifted up in every way, strengthen the ministry of the gospel in this congregation to your great glory, and may it show up in acts of amazing love. In Jesus' name. Listening to the Peninsula Covenant Church podcast. We're located at 3560 Farm Hill Boulevard in Redwood City, California. You can reach us online at www.peninsulacovenant.com.